don't realize how rich I am as a pastor until I'm away from you. It's good to be back. I've been in Turkey for a little while, and Andy and I went to, to visit some of our, our workers and meet their new teammates and join some of the work they've been doing uh, there. And uh, our friends send their greetings to you. Uh, hopefully I get to show you a video of, of Heather thanking the congregation next week. And uh, Kevin, whom you've been hearing about in the email updates, he greets you and he thanks you for your many prayers for him and for his salvation. I uh, hope to share more about the trip at a later time, maybe when Andy gets back from all of his uh, uh, travels, because uh, there's so much to rejoice over and, and so much that we can learn from what God is doing in, in Turkey. But for now, let's turn to Zechariah chapter 9. Uh, you can find that on page 796 in the Pew Bible. We're going to be looking at the first eight verses of Zechariah chapter 9. And what we're going to see is this. Uh, we're going to see a picture of God coming as a warrior uh, against the prideful nations, uh, yet still with mercy towards some. And that's incredibly fitting for this uh, season of Advent. Um, Jesus was born into this world to make it right again. And part of that uh, making the world right is going to come through judgment, through his judgment, and part of it will be coming through his mercy towards others. So verse, uh, let's look at verse 1 here through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded, the king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like, the, like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressors shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. We pray. Father, you do see with your own eyes your people now, and you stand this morning over us in protection. I pray that you guard us from the evil one and every... Uh, satanic philosophy that hinders us from hearing the gospel and receiving it into our hearts and being transformed by it. I pray that you would come now and help us understand your word by your Holy Spirit and teach us to walk in faithfulness to you in light of your future judgment and mercy towards the nations. Christ's name I pray, amen. So everything that we just read uh, has to do with God's dealings with nations other than Israel, his covenant people. Uh, he starts out, uh, you can see, if you just walk through the, the text here, he starts out in, the, in, in a region north of Israel. Uh, this is the land of Hadrach. Uh, with two cities in that land, uh, the city of Damascus and Hamath. And that's what we know today as present-day Syria. 
Um, then, then what he does is the message moves southward along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to these booming port cities of Tyre and Sidon, and then finally even further south uh, to four cities in Philistia, uh, namely Gaza, Ekron, Ashkelon, and Ashdod. These are just on the western coast of, of Israel there as we know it today. But so, so various nations who are not Israel. But here's something that's key to understanding our passage. All of these things are written for Israel. For God's covenant people. The words are about God's dealings with the nations, but they're written for God's covenant people. God's people are to listen to the ways he will deal with the nations and benefit from these words. That's important for us because through Jesus Christ, we have become God's covenant people and we too must listen to the ways that God will deal with the nations and benefit from these words. We may be centuries removed from Zechariah, but God's dealings with the nations are just as relevant to our day. But before we go there, let's walk through our passage in three uh, steps in order to grasp what's, what's going on here. What is this message that he's giving his covenant people? Step number one is to notice that God acts to bring about the world's worship of himself. God acts to bring about the world's worship of himself. And I get this from the second half of verse 1. But I do so by translating the Hebrew a little bit differently than the ESV has it. Um, remember, our English Bibles uh, do their best to represent the original Hebrew and Greek texts that we Christians hold to be the inspired word of God. And in this case, uh, the ESV translates it, For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. It's basically saying that the reason judgment is coming against the nations uh, is that God is watching the world. He sees the sinfulness of mankind and he will hold them accountable. And that's certainly true. But the Hebrew is better translated like the New American Standard version has it. Uh, for the eye of mankind especially all the tribes of Israel, belongs to the Lord or is to the Lord. In that translation, the meaning has more to do with what the world owes God. The world owes God all of its attention. Their eye belongs on Him. God is to be foremost in their thoughts. But there's a big problem in the world as we keep reading. And it's been a big problem since Adam fell into sin. The big problem is that the nations are very distracted. God is worthy of the world's worship, all of their attention, but the world pays him no attention. Their eye isn't on the Lord. Their eye is on the riches of this world. God's kingdom isn't foremost in their thoughts, but their own kingdoms are foremost in their thoughts. Their trust isn't in the Lord alone to save them. It is in the works of their own hands to save them. And we get a few pictures of this in the following verses. Uh, verse 2, for example, says that Tyre and Sidon, uh, though they are very wise. There's a bit of an irony playing out here. It's not saying that Tyre and Sidon are wise in the sense that they fear the Lord. It's saying that they think themselves to be wise in all that they can do for themselves. I mean, it seems like these two cities have it all together. Tyre, it says, has built herself a rampart. That means they have a, a nice fortress around them. Uh, then verse 3 goes on to describe its incredible wealth. They, they heap up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. Silver was as common as the dust on your furniture. It was incredibly wealthy. Isaiah tells us that Tyre 
uh, was like a house to all the merchants of surrounding uh, cities and nations. All the other nations looked to Tyre for wealth and prosperity. And if you were their allies, then you could enjoy some great security too. But all of this they enjoyed without God, without honoring Him as God or giving Him thanks. They don't pay God any attention because they think they don't need God at all. And this is much of why Jesus later would teach that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. The richer you are with the world, the harder it is for you to see your need of God. And people who live as if they don't need God are, at the most basic level, pretending themselves to be God. They think they can do everything themselves, including save themselves. But the thrust of this prophecy is that God will not tolerate this attitude, this disposition, this kind of behavior forever. He will act to bring about the world's worship of Him, because He alone is worthy of it. He will act to turn the world's eyes to himself. One way he will act to bring about the world's worship is through judgment. And that leads to the second step in our passage. God will cut down the proud and self-reliant nations. His word will actually create a day of judgment for the proud and the self-reliant And this future judgment against the nations has been spoken already before. You can uh, can see these like in the oracles against the nations in Isaiah and Ezekiel especially. Uh, But also with uh, Jeremiah, Amos, and Zephaniah. Uh, All these guys prophesied years before Zechariah was preaching. And they they prophesied the same thing, that God would come and judge Israel. Uh, the nations and many of the same place names you, you can even find uh, there. Uh, you can find in those other prophets, and also now we're seeing them again in Zechariah. But anyway, these the reason these previous prophets to Zechariah uh, were preaching judgment against the nations. Uh, was as a way to encourage Israel as they went into the period of exile. Remember, they have the 70 uh, years of exile. And he tells them all these things that he's going to do to the nations prior to them going into exile, so that as they go into exile, they're thinking, hey, these nations don't have the last word on us. We may be disciplined for a time in exile, but God will in fact judge them, and he will make the world right again. Well, now Israel has returned from exile. That 70-year period is over. Zechariah is now preaching to them. And what we're seeing is the total fulfillment of God's judgment on the nations hasn't yet come. They're back. The nations have yet to be judged. Meaning exile isn't quite yet over. Some of these nations did experience God's judgment when he sent the Babylonians to defeat them. But their total defeat had yet to come. And so God is now reminding them as if to say, hey, my word about those nations, it's still good. As you walk through exile, I'm planning to judge them once for all. Keep your trust in me. God's kingdom wouldn't come until all his words of judgment against the nations were fulfilled. So in some sense, he's pointing them to the future in terms of their past. He's pulling out the old prophecies. He's dusting them off for the people of his generation. And then renewing their hope in God's future plan to judge the nations, to make the world right again. So what will that consist of? Well, we catch a few glimpses of it in our passage. Uh, First off, uh, this word of judgment will settle on their cities until all his judgments are executed. That's the image we get in verse 1. It says Damascus is its resting place. This Damascus up in Syria. 
you have this capital city in Syria and God's judgment kind of depicted as a heavy mass. Uh, and it, it rests in Syria and when it does, uh, it, 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 it consumes it, it uh, in judgment. It, it rests in the capital until all the, the people are con- consumed. Also, we see uh, Tyre and Sidon, uh, these cities that, that thought they were all that earlier. Uh, verse 4 says, Behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. So these guys are no challenge to the Lord. Just as he raised them up, he can also take them out. And we see him doing that with Tyre. He strips away all that was precious to them. He takes their possessions, he takes their power, and he takes their palace. This is God coming as a a warrior against these these cities. Then in verse 5, we get some of the the ripple effects uh, of taking out these cities of Tyre and Sire. Uh, Ashkelon shall see it, that is, they shall see God's judgment, and they shall be afraid. And Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. In other words, the people were so dependent on the kingdom of man that when God stripped it from them, they had nothing. All meaning in life was lost with the downfall of the economy and the security that went with it. That's what happens when your hope is bound up with the things in this world that can perish. When they perish, so do your hopes. Verse 5 has even more to say. It says, The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall also be uninhabited. He will make the city a ghost town, in other words. And then finally, a mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. That's another way of saying he will strip Philistia, this, this region, of its nationality. Its own people will be driven out and then replaced by others. So God will kill their king, remove their people, and strip their nationality. In summary, verse 6 ends with, I will cut off the pride of Philistia. Everything that they could boast in, God will shatter it. God will cut down the proud and self-reliant nations. And this is one way he will turn the world's attention to himself. The eye of mankind belongs to the Lord, and he will see to it in the end that they all pay attention to him. There will be no escape. He will come in judgment until every knee bows and every tongue swears allegiance to him. He will make it so that even the proudest of nations has no other choice but to bow the knee. Some will bow in great worship and praise like we were earlier. Others will bow because of the terror of his judgment and might. But that's not all God will do in turning the eye of mankind to himself. And this leads us to take one last step in the passage. Notice that God will also show mercy to a remnant among the nations. He will show mercy to a remnant. To this point, God has been depicted as a conquering warrior. Uh, None of the prideful nations can stand his judgment. But there's an amazing shift in verses 7 to 8, and it shows us that even in the midst of God's judgment, he still shows mercy to some, to a remnant. What will that include? Well, to begin, he will show mercy by cleansing a remnant from their idolatry. Look at the middle of verse 7. It says, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. So two pictures are coming together here to speak of one thing, namely idolatry. Blood 
from its mouth. In the Old Testament, God forbid Israel from eating meat with life still in it. That means with blood still in it. And then this word, uh, abominations, is used elsewhere to speak of the forbidden food that's associated with pagan sacrifice. So this description of a man with blood dripping from his mouth and forbidden food stuck between his teeth is really a repulsive way to depict idolatry. But all of that is set up to then magnify God's mercy. Because in mercy, he takes it away from them forever. That's, and what's even more amazing is that he's doing this for Gentiles. In Ezekiel 36, this is decades before, Ezekiel promised that God would do this for Israel, his covenant people. The nations aren't part of his covenant people. God chose Israel. So decades before, Ezekiel promises that God would do this for Israel. He would strip them uh, from their idols when he would sprinkle them with clean water and cleanse them from all their idols by giving the entire nation a new heart. Change them from the inside out. But now we're seeing Gentiles like Philistia included in this same promise. Of this new covenant. To use the words of George Klein, a rather disgusting scene turns into a, a, a great word of encouragement. For some among the nations, God will remove their idols and make them tr- his true worshipers. He will also show this remnant mercy by making them his people. Uh, the end of verse 7. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Remember the Jebusites. The the Jebusites were a people who should have been destroyed altogether, according to Exodus 23. But some of them eventually found themselves dwelling with God's covenant people. That's Joshua 15 and 2 Samuel 24. The idea here is that God's powerful word of judgment would so transform people of Philistia that he wouldn't be ashamed of calling them his own. They would even be like a clan in Judah. They would become leaders within his covenant people. These are nations being grafted in to his covenant people. The mercy and grace in this passage is so extravagant. I mean, God takes a bloodthirsty, idolatry-craving, covenant-breaking people and he transforms them into a remnant for himself. I'll say more about this later, but that's precisely what he did for us in Jesus Christ. He cleansed us from our idolatry and he made us part of his family. Then finally, he shows uh, this remnant... Mercy by bringing them into his protecting presence. Verse 8. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. No oppressor shall again march over them. And we need to see that the them at this point includes both Israel and the remnant God just brought out of the nations. When God encamps over you in his kingdom, then none can stand against you. This is much of like what we saw back in chapter 2, verse 5, uh, where, where God is going to create a city that is inhabited as villages without walls. And when he does this, he will be for them a fire all around. The reason the village is going to be like a I mean, the reason the city is going to be like a village without walls is because he can't fit all the people in that he's bringing from the nations. And all these people he's going to surround. He's going to be a wall of fire all around to protect them. So this will be his mercy to a remnant among the nations. Yes, he will come to uh, to the nations with judgment. 
He will uphold justice and defeat his enemies, but he will also extend mercy to some, a remnant that he has marked out for himself. And it's not that these remnant that he takes out of the nations are better than the other nations. He's not taking them out and saving them and removing their idolatry because they're better than everybody else. He's doing it because he's going to put their judgment on his son, Jesus, which is why he sent Jesus into this world, which is what Christmas is about. Jesus came into the world first in humility to bear the judgment of this remnant among the nations, to bear the judgment of God's covenant people so that they did not have to. So God comes as a warrior, yet still with mercy. So what can we take home with us in light of a prophecy like this? Well, first off, being that it is the season of Advent, where we celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, a passage like this helps renew our hopes that God will, in fact, bring peace on earth. Uh, The proud and self-reliant nations who oppose God and oppress God's people won't last forever. God will cut them down. God will cut them down. That is our hope. And Isaiah says that in the end, the government of this world will rest on the shoulders of one man, namely Jesus Christ. For for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. The judgment of this world's kingdom is already taking place. Jesus came and died for sinners and then he rose again on the third day victorious over sin and death and the devil. And as a result, God has exalted him to his right hand in heaven where he must reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet, the last enemy being death itself. Jesus' enemies are being put under his feet right now. One by one, they are going down, and eventually he will finish the work at his return from glory when his kingdom comes on earth. But until then, we take a word like this from Zechariah, and we set our trust in God to make the world right again. Even amidst all the news headlines that you're reading every day that are provoking fear and other things, we look to this one, Jesus, and his reign to make the world right again. And this passage is, is, is giving us such hope. It's, it's, it's telling us, hey, these, the judgment of these nations is coming. It's certain. You know why it's certain? Because God's word makes it certain. God's not just predicting the future here. He's creating the future. This is what will happen. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you know, you're like the nations we described earlier. You live for yourself. You pretend like you don't need God. You think you have it all together. You look to your own works to save you. Consider yourself very blessed to be within the hearing of this word. God is revealing the future judgment for you right now so that you might escape it. He is warning you through this passage to turn away from your pride and self-reliance and to admit that you need Him to save you from your sins. He has provided a way of escape through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is what Christmas is all about. God sending His Son. Don't find yourself among the nations that Jesus crushes beneath His feet. Put your faith in Jesus and find yourself under God's protecting presence like the remnant of this passage. Second, this prophecy should bring a lot of hope and encouragement for recovering idolaters like us. Zechariah's prophecy teaches us to take heart that God is powerful to take away your idolatry. You know, those of you who belong to Christ, you you have the Holy Spirit. You feel conviction when your heart is tugged towards things, towards idols, you feel the, the lure of this, of this world. 
There are still occasions when you're tempted to chase after a security that offers a false hope and is devoid of a relationship with God. You feel your heart tug at times to go find an intimacy that's fleeting and foolish and perhaps destructive to your marriage and that displaces God. Instead of looking to Christ above, your eyes wander, looking for satisfaction in something other than God's kingdom and its righteousness. You're grieved, sometimes even to despair, by how often you find yourself falling and bowing to, the, to that idol of comfort, and that idol of family, and that idol of financial freedom, and that idol of, I wish I had what she had, or I wish I could do what he does. There is great hope for us in a prophecy like this. God is able to take away the abominations from your teeth as well. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And in many ways I'd say that we find a fulfillment of what Zechariah speaks of here. You know, God is promising here a day when he will remove the idolatry from a remnant among the nations. And then we read things like this in the New Testament, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. How is it that God ultimately removes idolatry from his chosen people? He ultimately removes it by pouring out his judgment on Christ in your place, by washing you with the shed blood of Jesus, and then by giving you a righteousness that's not your own, but his And as we read from Ezekiel a bit earlier, he also gives us a new heart by the Holy Spirit. We call it the new birth in Christianity. So that we love what God loves. We no longer bow to the idols. We bow to the one true and only God. This is what he does for every Jew and Gentile who trusts in Jesus. And this is what he has done for all of you who trust in Jesus. He has so broken the power of idolatry in your life and he has so cleansed you from all your abominations that he's not ashamed to include you in his family. Forever. Forever. Jesus isn't ashamed to call you brothers. Why? You've been cleansed from all your idols. And the work he began to take, he began to take away your idols, he will also complete Philippians 1 tells us. So take heart. Keep crying out for him to complete his work in you. He is powerful to take away every idolatrous impulse. If you're in Christ, he will do it. When you read about him taking the, the, uh, the blood from the mouth of Philistia, think, I'm part of these Gentile nations too. And that's what he's done for me. You won't feel these impulses forever. A day will come when it's totally gone and God brings you into the absolute liberty of his true and pure worship. You don't need to fear his wrath coming against the world anymore because in Christ you're not part of the world anymore. You belong to God. You are his people for his possession. Third, As you know, there's been a lot said in the mainstream media and on social media about the Syrian refugee crisis. And while sadly some of the exchanges among Christians aren't quite so pure, peaceable, gentle, or open to reason, 
Others have promoted some healthy reflection on our role as Christians in a very complex situation. In my own study, this passage has proven to be quite helpful for me in thinking through a few things in relation to the refugee crisis, along with some of the questions surrounding Islam. It certainly doesn't give us an exhaustive answer to the measures we should take in national security, nor does it provide us with everything we might consider in addressing Islamic jihadism and international terrorism. But it is helpful in addressing a few really, really important things. One way it has helped me is by strengthening me in God's victory when I become worried or afraid. If we're not careful, the mainstream media can start to shape our outlook on the world more than the Bible. And slowly, over time, we lose sight of our sovereign God and are overtaken by worry and paralyzing fear that keeps us from following Jesus and taking risks in the path of love. But here, in the Word of God, in this particular prophecy, we get a vision of a sovereign God who is in control and who is wise and who will not let evil prevail. Period. Again, when we think of prophecy, we should not think that God is merely predicting the future. God is creating the future through His powerful Word. What He speaks will happen. His sure and certain word will bring his judgments to pass on the nations. You can imagine some of the terror that Israel itself felt as the surrounding nations mocked them and threatened them. But here God speaks a word to them, reassuring them that the oppressive nations will not and cannot win. That vision of the future gives me a lot of strength. And should give us a lot of strength to keep doing what God has called us to do. That vision of the future keeps us, uh, kept me sharing the gospel with Muslims in Turkey while overhearing questions from other Muslim men who were suspicious that I might be Russian. Not good to be Russian in Turkey right now. It's like, no, Americano here. I'm not Russian. I'm here for peace. This vision of the future helps our missionaries take risks in hopes that new doors would be opened for the gospel. One way we attempted to befriend other Muslim men, and and this is something that our workers do over there, uh, is by going with a group of them to watch a soccer match downtown uh, one evening. Uh, when we think downtown, you've got to think differently in a Muslim culture. I mean, we're, we're talking sunflower, sunflower seeds and bottled water uh, with rows of chairs and a screen that you watch the soccer game. So don't think sports bar. So they go down, you go downtown and you befriend these guys. And, and we were with one of uh, Kevin. You've been hearing with. Uh, but at one point, you know, I'm finding myself, they told me it's downtown, but I'm finding myself walking down dark alleys that look a whole lot like what I was seeing in the news in the Paris attacks. And I'm walking down these alleys with a hundred other Muslim men. I get nervous doing stuff like that here with Christians. And there were moments that had I not known this God, had I not had a relationship with this God, had this vision of God's victory not been mine, I wouldn't have risked it for Christ's sake. I mean, like, let's go get back in the car and we'll do this in daylight. But texts like this are treasures to me in the midst of fear and worry. They comfort the soul they give, and they give courage to me to obey Christ at all costs. Risks are worth it when your God wins. And that includes his victory in raising us from the dead. Another way this passage has helped me in the midst of the Syrian refugee crisis is that it places my longings for security in the right place. Some of the stuff I read by Christians makes me wonder where their true security ultimately lies. 
It makes me question whether they really understand the security that they already possess in Christ. You know, like the city of Tyre, we too, I mean, especially in a country where safety is easily an idol, we are very vulnerable to relying on our own cleverness and our own strength and our own wealth and our own military power and our own technological savvy such that we stray from ever trusting in God. We lose sight of where true security lies. Don't get me wrong. In light of the religious motivation among some Muslims to use murder and terrorism to advance the rule of Islamic law over all nations, there are real questions to ask in light of national security. Real questions. But the national security of America is not ultimately all that safe. There's enough evil here as it is. National security can't stop Satan's influence on the sons of disobedience who are already citizens of this country. Nor will it last all that long, nor will it give you eternal life. And while it may be important to consider, it's pretty dismal in comparison to the real security that we all need. True security and lasting security and life-giving security comes only in our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Our ultimate security must be here in verse 8, where God says, I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall again march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. This picture of God encamping among his people for their protection. God himself must be our refuge and place of safety. And that's still true even if America prospers in national security. What good is it to be safe from international terrorism and not safe from the wrath of God? We must keep this straight in our conversations. And when we do, when we find our ultimate security in Christ, we will be free to lay down our lives for our enemies. Even if, it, if, even if they take everything that is precious to us in this life, they cannot take away our God, nor can they take away our life in his kingdom. Which leads me to one last way this passage helped me. It, re, it helped me to see that my life should be spent living to save God's remnant from among the nations at all costs. My life should be spent living to save God's remnant from among the nations. Part of the problem in some of the church's response to the Syrian refugee crisis is that they totally miss the incredible opportunity this is for the gospel to advance. Our passage says that God intends to save a remnant from the nations. In fact, please consider how that was first heard by Israel. Can you imagine sitting under the oppression of foreign invaders for all these years? They've raped your women, they've pillaged your cities, they've killed your relatives, and they've desecrated your temple. And can you imagine Zechariah coming in and saying, Hey, by the way, God intends to make some of them your worship leaders. They're going to be like a clan in Judah. By the way, God intends to remove their idols and make some of them join you next Sunday morning for worship. By the way, you're going to spend eternity with them in my presence. You can just feel the self-righteousness welling up. Do what? No way am I going to worship with that former jihadist. And God is saying, if you want any part of my kingdom, you will. We cannot tell God who he can and cannot save. God is free to save whomever he pleases, even Islamic jihadists from Syria. Don't forget the Apostle Paul who wasn't all that different when God rescued him 
on the Damascus Road. And once he saved Paul, Acts chapter 9 says that Paul preached the gospel in Damascus. This is Syria here. Preached the gospel in Damascus shortly after he was converted and God saved many people in that city. He did exactly what Zechariah anticipated. Took away their idols, brought them into his family. Acts chapter 8 also says that Philip preached the gospel in Azotus. And Azotus is the Roman name for the city of Ashdod that we just read about in Zechariah 9. God is gathering out a remnant for himself. And some of them are even from Syria. Many of you know that Turkey borders Syria. We were within a few hours from it ourselves. And uh, Turkey has also received the most refugees at this point, uh, despite their political differences with Syria. Anyway, at one point, we ran across a couple of Syrian boys working in a local shop. They were 15 years old, started when they were 12 because they can't get any kind of normal education in Turkey. Uh, So they work all day just trying to make it while all their friends go to school. And here's the amazing thing. These two boys, they work in this little shop in Turkey. And the owner is a man who, despite his Muslim upbringing, questions the validity of the Quran, is against the oppression of Islam, and is reading the Bible with our friends and loving Jesus. He's loving what he sees about Jesus. If there was ever an opportunity for these two Syrian boys to hear and embrace the gospel, it's now. Some Muslims, and most of the ones that we interacted with in Turkey, are searching for an alternative to the satanic oppression that they've experienced for centuries in Islamic, under Islamic rule. And some of those peoples are talking with our workers, and some of them are knocking on the door of our country seeking refuge. So don't miss this, folks. Let's not turn our back on the Great Commission over fear. Yes, screen people well and ensure as best you can that they want to be law-abiding citizens. But even if Department of Homeland Security misses somebody, rejoice at the opportunity to preach Christ to them and hold out the hope that God will add him or her to his people and that you will dine with them in the kingdom. If that's not your heartbeat, then you need to consider whose kingdom you're really living for. God has a remnant that he wants saved from among the nations. Live to see them come to know Christ. This is the way Christ lived to save us. In fact, it was even more beautiful because Christ did not wait for us to come seek refuge. He had way more security in heaven than America could ever dream, but he humbled himself And he entered our mess. He was born in a feed trough and spent 33 years living to die so that we could live. Let's follow our master's example of laying down our lives to see our Syrian neighbors come to know Christ. And not just Syrian neighbors, but all the refugees who've already been here for so long in this city. Let's enter their mess. Let's show our enemies hospitality and pray for them as Jesus teaches us so that many might submit themselves to Jesus before he comes as a warrior to judge. Syrians will be present before his throne on the last day, singing of the same mercy we have come to experience in Christ. We aren't saved because we're better than the rest of the nations, because we're better than the jihadists. 
We're just as deserving of judgment as the rest of the self-reliant nations, but God has shown us mercy in Christ. God chose to love us by pouring out his judgment on Christ instead. So let's, in light of that mercy shown to us, let's live to save God's remnant among the nations. That may mean going to them if they're not already here. That may mean taking every advantage to share Christ with those already here. That may mean thinking through your part in helping families get acclimated to life in the States, looking for an open, for an open door for the gospel. Whatever we do, let's not underestimate the power of our God to transform idolaters into his true worshipers alongside of us. Why don't we pray? Father in heaven, you are glorious and true. We love your word. It is food for our soul. I pray that it would move us to give our lives for your kingdom, that you would fill us with compassion and mercy as we proclaim your justice to the nations, that you would make us bold in proclaiming to all that your judgment is coming and that their only hope is in Christ. I pray that this Christmas would provide many opportunities for us to proclaim these things to our family members, And to those, perhaps, we we don't even know that we're going to meet yet. Do this, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.